I think at the beginning, everyone thought we were crazy. And at the beginning, everyone was like, but the children, they'll get their hands on it and all be drunk. And we were like, no. Successes in the Mind is proud to have partnered with and be supported by the Great British Entrepreneur Awards and Community, a programme that recognises, celebrates, supports, encourages and champions entrepreneurs in Great Britain. Hello and welcome to another episode of Successes in the Mind with me, Oliver Bruce. If you're new to the show, we'll be discussing with current owner entrepreneurs their failures, mistakes, passion and continued persistence in the face of business adversity. Not all entrepreneurs have completed their vision just yet. Some are just starting out. I want to give you a sense of business reality in a world full of idealism. What does it take to become successful, to grow a brand or to start a business? Join me to find out from those that are currently doing just that. Just a little disclaimer for this podcast. If you hear pots, pans and boxes being moved in the background, it's because Melanie's currently moving from New York to London and she's having her house packed up. So do excuse it. But anyway, it's a great interview nonetheless. Today, I'm joined by the real-life Willy Wonka. With a splash of alcohol and a dash of sugar, Melanie Goldsmith. Melanie started her business life in early 2014 with a very clear vision, which was to make adult more fun. Having been interested in sweets from a very young age, like us all, her byproduct of a board game dating series quickly turned into a business reality after selling thousands of pounds worth of leftover sweets in just a few weeks. Upon launching her new business, Smith & Sinclair, with business partner Emile, the two saw rapid growth within three days of launching their website, enjoying orders of over 20,000 sweets, which took them two months to manufacture, even pulling on friends and family for help. I'm looking forward to this one. Melanie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. No, no, thank you. And you're dialing in from New York? Yes, from Brooklyn. And that's, and that's because you're living out there at the moment and moving back to London? Yes, I've been out here for a year now living um, stateside and with everything going on, it just made sense for us to go back to the UK. And what was the reason for, for going out there in the first place a year ago? So we were acquired by a publicly trading US company with the intention for them to own Smith & Sinclair and spin out new products under that umbrella and then to also launch a CBD specific brand, which we did called Pollen. Um, so to open the US office for both brands to accelerate kind of retail strategy out here to build a team independently of the UK team to run the whole of the US. Um, and I did that. And now it's time to move back to the UK because we have now spun Smith & Sinclair back out of the company that bought us. Um, so now it's independently owned by us again, um, sold Pollen on and it's just makes sense for us to be UK central again. Because there must be a huge amount of regulation that, that is different in America than it is obviously in the UK. And, and I suppose with regards to those rules and regs, what do you guys come under? Is it, it's not alcohol, is it, what, what is it? What's we the... always come under confectionery. There is that sort of a, an ABV you have to stay under to kind of be a chocolate liqueur category, which is where we're at. Okay, fine. And, and when you, I suppose, when you're when you're trying to pitch this to people, and you're going, okay, so we're alcoholic sweets. Do you often get laughed out the room, or do they go, this is really interesting? Tell me more. I think at the beginning, everyone thought we were crazy, and at the beginning, everyone was like, "But the children, they'll get their hands on it and all be drunk," and we were like, "No." Um, I mean, we've t we've done very specific measures in our product and packaging. So each gummy is actually individually wrapped in a sachet that's opaque, and then 
those are in an opaque box. And so there isn't that worry that if it sits on the retail shelves, a child will see it and want it because they won't even know what it is. And we've worked really closely with the regulatory boards to kind of get that sign off um, and go overboard. And with retailers, I think, you know, their biggest concern is how they regulate the purchasing point. So, you know, in our bigger retailers like John Lewis, they would just infiltrate the barcode. So when the you know, salesperson checks them out, a kind of flag comes up to check their ID to make sure they're 18. You went through university back in the day and, and studied cultural criticism uh, and music. Now, I suppose <laughs> that isn't a business degree. And now you're trading internationally and you've got, as you said, very well-known known clients, big, big retailers, Harrods, Selfridges, you know, shops of, of those ilk. I mean, how did you learn all of this? Did you just jump into it? Yeah, baptism of fire has always been kind of my way. Um, <laughs> you know, it's one of those funny things where ignorance can sometimes be bliss. Like I hadn't been told what to be scared of. I didn't know anyone really in business or who'd scaled in that very traditional way of, you know, doing a friends and family investment round, getting a product to launch. Then once you're starting to trade, doing a series A, doing a series B, C, D and so on and kind of accelerating in that very traditional VC structured route and also america and the uk do it very differently i think there's a lot more money in the us up for grabs and also a lot more encouragement for entrepreneurialism out here um i think in the uk it, we stifle at quite an early stage which on the one hand means probably more businesses that get past year one do survive longer term because it's so much harder in the uk to survive year one but vice versa it means we're probably stifling a lot of creativity by not giving much opportunity to get off the ground and for us, because we didn't know that, we had nothing to lose. We, right at the beginning, I sold a sort of family heirloom to get us off the ground with a bit of cash. Oh, God. What was it? It was a bracelet that I'd inherited and didn't, you know, I was never going to wear it. It was ugly and not my style and very 80s ostentatious. And, you know, I thought someone's going to buy this for a couple grand. We ended up actually selling it for 20 grand. Wow. Had you known, would you have worn it? I'm not a very materialistic person. So things like that, I'm like, great, I got 20 grand and started a whole business. And I'm here where I am now as a result. And I, the whole family were, you know, much more pleased with that than it's sitting in a safe somewhere. And that's, I, that's, I admire that hugely about you because, and, and your mantra, I suppose, from day one has, has very much been to make adult more fun, which I think is a great um, uh, sort of uh, reason to go in into business. But I suppose Smith & Sinclair, as it's known today, wasn't uh, the vision when you started because it was a spin-off of a, of a dating board game, which, again, I'm fascinated by. How did that work? So I was in a really awful job at the time. I was really unhappy in, in a PR job. And um, Emil was a chef and he was working insanely weird long hours, you know, working till three in the morning and then getting up at five to do breakfast shifts. It was it was pretty brutal. And, you know, we're seeing friends dating in that sort of awkward world where online dating wasn't what it is now. It wasn't the ease of Tinder and Hinge and Happen and Bumble. It was Guardian Soulmates and Match.com. And it was all, it was still in the world where you thought you were going to get murdered if you met up in person. <laughs> you know, at the time it was a really awkward, if, if so many of our friends are moving to London, everyone was trying to kind of get in their like early 20s, you know, journey. And for me, play is such an important part of who I am. Like, I love board games. I love silliness. I love, you know, quasar, quad biking, like all the stuff that I didn't grow out of for some reason. Mm -hmm. And we used to host just at our flat, you know, board game 
nights all the time. Yeah. And slowly sort of six people became 12 people, became 30 people because people were just bringing friends of friends and it became this kind of hotspot to meet people like you who you didn't know before. And we couldn't fit 30 people in our flat. So I just sort of thought one day, well, I could charge 10 quid and get people to do this, but in a bar where there is room. And we could make it more of a singles thing because so many people were coming because to exactly that, to meet people. It just it just performed exactly how we wanted it to. And then because of the people that were coming, they were all very London centric creatives. You know, they worked in ad agencies and events and things like that. So we started getting inquiries about, you know, I came to your night and I'd love to, you know, order 200 Valentine whiskey gummies because Valentine whiskey is my client at an ad agency and I want to impress them. Right. And so we started doing these ad hoc and then I quit my job because I was miserable and Emil went agency so that he could have flexible hours. And we started doing a couple events here and there. You know, we both picked up some work where we were old, like I, you know, worked the door for a really small private members club and mm-hmm. I asked them if I could sell them at the door and we, you know, we were making enough money to kind of get by and keep buying ingredients. And then we had a market stall which, as you said, is where Imbibe Live, who are the biggest alcohol trade show in the UK, got in touch and they ordered 20,000 for their marketing campaign that, that year. And it just kickstarted us. Wow. So it was very much the right place at the right time, I suppose, but actually with a, a really unique, really fun, different product that's not trying to be too serious. It's actually just trying to just trying to allow people to have a bit of fun. And I suppose that 20,000 unit order, that could have toppled you in the early days because I suppose you obviously used your friends and family to help manufacture and make it. But if you had another 20,000 unit order, would that have then toppled you? You'd have fallen over, you wouldn't be able to fulfill it and you'd have lost obviously clients because of that. How did you deal with that? I mean, the first 20,000 was pretty savage. There was no kitchen space for flexible hire except one, which was like a series of very high tech production kitchens all the way out in Park Royal. And you rented it by the hour and it was it was too expensive. So what we ended up doing was contacting kind of local churches and synagogues mm-hmm. because they were all licensed for food and health, you know, health and safety. Um, but none of them really used the kitchens during the day. So we would go in, make, you know, a thousand gummies, pack them into my Igo, drive them back to my flat where we had kind of baking parchments set up around all the floors, would lay them out because the unique thing about a product is it's very high liquid, which means it needs to cure mm-hmm. and you need to leave it for a couple of days to kind of stabilize the molecular structure. Otherwise they become really syrupy and kind of will dissolve at room temperature and we needed them to last. So we did that, except it wasn't, we weren't able to make enough every day. And eventually my mum's husband is, works for a school that were on Easter break. So they let us actually take over their school kitchen for three solid weeks, which meant we could kind of do days and nights. And we were, you know, ahead of the game. We were crushing it. We'd made sort of seven, you know, seven thousand over two days. Wow! And we needed lots of dehumidifiers around the space because it was, you know, a school kitchen. <laughs> anyway, we went home and we came back the next morning, and the cleaner had been in over the night and turned off all of our dehumidifiers. Oh God! Which meant that seven thousand gummies had kind of all turned to mush. No way! And talk, how much was that worth to you back then? What was the sort of revenue there? Well, we'd been paid up front for the gummies because they'd been really kind in, in how we had no kind of cash flow um well they paid us 70 percent. they paid us a large sum up front and we weren't really going to make profit on it sure so so, so you obviously had the twenty thousand from the sale of of your bracelet which was a lucky a lucky win to a certain extent at what point did you run out of of that money what was the burn rate on that when you were starting well we were kind of profitable from day one because me and emil worked for just our bare minimum costs to be covered and didn't have social life um We found eventually a kitchen which was in the top floor of an army reserve center. It was very odd, but it also was cheap as chips. 
And so our, we just kept our overhead so low. We didn't have any full-time staff for the first year. And we're working a lot of events, which were obviously quite cash heavy. So we you know, worked at Secret Cinema, we worked with private events, we um, did sort of consumer trade shows. So we didn't actually raise money for two more years after the initial. So 20, we, we set the company up in 2014 and didn't raise money until 2016. Wow, so that 20,000 lasted you essentially about 24 months. Yeah. I looked on your website, and what was it, in 2017 when Trump was running his, uh, I suppose, presidential campaign, which he's doing again now, you released lollipops that said Trump sucks. Now, I think that's brilliant. Were they successful? They were very successful. We, the whole point of the campaign was we actually needed cash in that month. And we've done a lot of, over the years, a lot of charitable initiatives with specific SKUs. You know, we recently did our love box for the month of Pride, where we all, you know, 20% of all sales went to to LGBTQ charities. And we've done stuff for men's mental health charities because my Emil suffers with mental health challenges. Mm -hmm. So we've done a lot over the years, but that was um, to get cash in, but we didn't necessarily need the profit from it. We were willing to donate and we wanted to donate everything to Planned Parenthood. The funny thing was when we made the lollipop, so Tom, who's my husband, he's actually a sculptor by trade, but that's like saying I'm a musician by trade. So <laughs> neither of us actually do it, but he did make these Trump molds that looked mm -hmm. identical to Trump's head. And we made about 200 lollipops and over the weekend, and we invite, we got one of my friends to do a funny little video. And the whole point was if we sold 200 lollipops at five pound each, it was enough money to kind of get us through that month. Mm -hmm. And then once we got the rest of our cash in that had been kind of overdue, we could give the profits to Planned Parenthood. And we made that clear with the initiative that all profits would be going. And it just so happened on that Monday, Trump pulled his funding from Planned Parenthood. So there was loads of news and actually it got picked up by George Takai, who's a big Star Trek celebrity out here. He's got 20 million followers on Facebook. Oh, wow. And because he posted our video, it went viral. We had about four and a half million shares of the video Crikey. in 24 hours. That's incredible. I mean, that's expensive as a campaign if you had to pay for it. But and, and that was an accident. So that was an accident. We ended up selling about £20,000 worth of lollipops. We couldn't make them. We ended up having to outsource the manufacturing. No way, but there was still margin there to be able to donate to uh, to, to the organisation of your choice. Yeah, we donated about seven thousand pounds. I, I was thinking last night when I was when I was researching into you, I thought, well, what what can we do this this campaign? And I thought, okay, so there's those sweets that you used to be able to have as whistles, and you used to be able to blow them, for instance, and make. Mm. I thought we could have maybe Trump blows in the, in the 2020 something like that. Would that work? That's funny. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> let's let's do that one. We can give all the donations, all the, all the profit to uh, to the same charity. That's really funny. <laughs> you have that one for free, man. Melanie. Thank you. No, no worries at all. And obviously, you've now, as you said earlier, diversified into, into CBD. What was the reasoning behind that? Because again, it's it's a new market. It's a market that's that's growing in theory, but it's not a market you've had any experience in. Why? Um, I mean, I didn't have experience in alcoholic gummies before starting that. Well, so. no, that's a fair point. <laughs> <laughs> a fair point. And what I think, well, there's lots of reasons. So Emil and really openly um, taught discovered CBD kind of two years into his mental health journey. He, you know, he went to CBT therapy and, and lots of people there were interested in CBD and cannabinoid support. Mm -hmm. And so he was sourcing it for himself. And just honestly, in Europe, you just couldn't find a decent product. It was all really inconsistent. It wasn't correctly labeled. It was tasted bad. Mm -hmm. And it's been a lot of very difficult times and not short periods, you know, years of really challenging times. And to find a product that you can take consistently that's easy, that helps you kind of stabilize 
your brain chemistry, your hormones, you know, just allows you to be a bit calmer. Mm -hmm. I was totally bought in as well. And edibles was a huge market in the US and I didn't see a single kind of vegan gummy that was good. And we'd obviously spent years developing our recipes that are very proprietary to what we do. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we thought actually there's a market for creating a high quality and cost effective accessible gummy to the EU market. And at the same time, you know, some of our early investors in the business were involved in a cannabis company in the US. And so I was able to do a lot of research and, and, and understand it and educate myself on it more. Um, And when we were acquired, the company that acquired us was in cannabis, and Mm -hmm. they bought into the sort of foundation of what we were creating with pollen, and then accelerated our launch to market for it. It's brilliant. And you and I suppose Emil as well, you've had quite a turbulent history and, and indeed there's still elements of turbulence, uh, turbulence going on. For instance, when you were younger, you, you lost your dad, sadly, and, and Emil's obviously suffers from, from mental uh, health issues. Now, I suppose those two very serious things, is, is that almost something that you take, you look at and you go, actually, screw it. I'm going to have as much fun as I can because, you know, even if I were to drop down tomorrow, I want to know I've lived my life to the full. Does that spur you on what you've been through? I think, you know, Emil and I are both very centered. We're both quite um, not impulsive people, but we're both very passionate people in different ways. Emil's far more of a kind of, uh, he processes in a very different way. I'm much quicker and much more action focused. Emil needs more time to digest information. He's probably more introverted in a group situation. And so we also balanced each other to not let the snowball go out of control. And we also took very distinctive roles at the very beginning, which is for, for us was very important that we didn't step on each other's toes. And because in kind of after the second year of the business, Emil didn't want really anywhere near the kind of control of a business partner. He wanted to stay a co-founder, but focus on what his talent was. So he completely, his job was focused on new product development and innovation. And I just took on a kind of sole CEO role. And that was, that was good because it allowed us to take our experiences and, you know, penetrate what we were good at rather than, cloud each other's judgment because it's interesting how you're so much of a i suppose the frontman the front person for for uh for your brand and as much as googling smith and sinclair for instance comes up with primarily yourself and there's some great articles out there but when when you started who was the driving force behind getting that pr getting that branding out there because you've got nearly thirty thousand followers now on, on instagram which is a huge number how do you go about doing that when you started did you pay for anything N- no not at the beginning no. I've always been the driving force of the brand and marketing, but we've also had brilliant head of marketing people in our team. I mean, we had Fran Pierce, who's now started up her own consultancy company, but she was a significant driving force over the last two years and totally balances her creativity with functionality of you know data and, and accessing those larger numbers of social media engagement. At the beginning, we didn't know. it was We were so experience focused that we did these pop-ups quite regularly and they garnered us a really big fan base because this was kind of pre-experiential marketing and you could come into kind of our adult candy shops and you could press buttons that release smells of cocktails. You could have candy floss that dissolved to make your cocktail in front of your eyes and it was all different. And so we had, and you know, our social media has always been really shamelessly what we call camp and fun and very kind of like self-aware. You know, we're not, we're really a we're really diverse team so we've always been very grateful for how that gets articulated externally as well which makes your audience 
wider and more engaged. And obviously going, I suppose, from the, from the manufacture, from when you were doing that through to retail, how was, how was that transition? Because obviously you were in Harvey Nicks, you were in John Lewis, Selfridges, Selfridges Harris, big, big brands. How did you get into them? So Harvey Nichols were really supportive from an early stage. So we, we'd been working on a project with a company called Heyman's Gin, and we'd been making them bespoke Heyman's Gin and tonic gummies. And they were using them as kind of pitch tools for different retailers. And when they pitched to Harvey Nichols, Harvey Nichols was so interested in the gummies that we actually got put in touch directly with the buyer who wanted to be our first exclusive retailer. So we got into Harvey Nichols kind of, we made our first consumer packaging for them. Was that your first, that was your first in then, Harvey Nichols? Harvey Nichols was our first in, yeah. And they were, they were still with them. You know, they're a great retailer. And in terms of manufacturing, that's been by far that was the hardest hurdle to overcome we were manufacturing them ourselves for the first three years and then we made a really unfortunate outsourcing decision it went horribly wrong and we lost a lot of money on it so what was the what was the mistake you outsourced it to a manufacturer why did it go so badly wrong we didn't leave ourselves enough time to really work through the recipes with them to give ourselves a proper cost evaluation we trusted them we'd given them a kind of benchmark of what cost we needed and they promised us, you know, yeah, we'll hit that, no problem, no problem, no problem. But they knew they had us by the neck because we had to, you know, hit a timeline to get into retail. And then what they eventually did was basically upcharge us 300%. So what did you do then? If you, if you lost your margins, you lost your investment, did you get the product? Well, they were holding our inventory and we needed to get it into retail. So we had to, yeah, we had to pay for it. That's, that's horrendous. And you quickly obviously pivoted to a new, a, a new manufacturer. And it, you know, that was happy days from day one. Were there teething issues there? You learned from your mistakes, obviously. So we brought it back in-house temporarily just because we didn't want to make the same mistake of just rushing to another manufacturer. So we, we really brought it in-house so we could spend six months working it through with the new manufacturer. Right. And, um, and yeah, to this day, we're still really happy with them. And they're actually going to be a kind of partner more substantially for Europe moving forward. That's incredible. And, and looking into the European market, I suppose, and with the dreaded Brexit around the corner, which it is, is that going to affect you guys in any way? Or have you got a, a sort of holding in, in other countries that allows you to, to not be hit by that? So we've done a kind of two-pronged strategy. So because we make the gummies in Europe, what we're going to be doing is withholding some stock and keeping it in storage in Europe so that we can then distribute it across European countries um, without having kind of import cost into the UK and then export cost back out to Europe. So that's how we're going to be working with our manufacturer more closely. In terms of are we going to be hit by import taxes, it's very unclear from the government exactly what that will be for our type of product. But what we have done is scaled our manufacturing to such an extent because we actually, for America, we're still purchasing our products from Europe. So the scale of inventory has allowed our cost to come down quite substantially anyway. So we've got a bit of room in the margin for kind of whatever Brexit throws at us. And when you when you move back over to the UK, what, what what does it hold for you over here then? You're obviously moving from America, you, you bought back your business, you have that kind of 100% entity now. What are you going to do over the next 12 months? You know, I very much want to, because my mind has been across two, two big countries with two different brands and now I'm back on one brand. And the way we're working with, um, you know, the American team is to streamline with sales agents so that we don't have like employed sales teams because it's actually just it's too big so america's off to a really great start and in the lead up to christmas i think it's just going to get bigger and bigger so you know i want to make sure that we maximize our exposure in the lead up to christmas is kind of a number one gifting item and um, we're going to be focusing on sort of uh, evolving the website to be a more one-stop shop for gifting so allowing people to kind of do gift wrap and card purchasing and have that 
built in to the website and to kind of re-engage sort of the way the teams work in a post-COVID world. You know, what can we be doing to improve? What, what do you think the post-COVID world looks like for you guys? Um, I mean, we've always had a flexible working environment where people can request days to work from home. So I don't see, I don't, I mean, I hate working from home 24 hours. I just, I really like the energy that a physical team builds together. We're trying to figure out because our office was also our lab and a bit of warehouse spacing. It was quite a functional space. So how we do that in the future is still up for debate. And then retail, we're just having to pivot the whole business to a much stronger e-commerce proposition because people don't physically want to be in retail in the same way. Retailers aren't opening up in the same way. And it's so inspiring to hear your your story in as much as you are very much just get up and go and what's the worst that could happen? I'm going to make the best of a bad situation. All those kind of analogies to a certain extent. But looking back, I suppose, over your over your career, what has been the worst thing and the biggest mistake that you have made personally in business? Um, I would say recruitment, probably. I think I really, really struggled with building a team for years. For years, I just couldn't get the culture where I wanted it to be. I couldn't manage the way I wanted to. You know, it was almost like we went to one way. So at the beginning, when we couldn't afford to have kind of a structured hierarchy, everyone was just at one level. Right. It meant that we had quite a really ambitious, but I want to say not arrogant, but everyone thought they could do everything, which was great. But it also meant that kind of no one was spending time anticipating mistakes. No one was investing time into back channeling or plan B's. Mm-hmm. Everyone was just very plan A and it just created a very ballsy, but you know, very to- toxic and kind of chaotic structure. And then we kind of went the other way where we started putting in like senior management roles, but we got a few people that didn't gel well and and had a bit of tyranny, you know, on the other side. And so it took years and then we just had them, you know, about two and a half years ago, it just clicked and we built in this brilliant senior management team who just worked incredibly well together. The strategy suddenly gelled, the execution was spot on. And, you know, it just, the pain of four years of not getting it right has stuck with me. I would say the hardest. Looking at, I suppose, your your sort of CSR policy, that might be the wrong term, but working with charities and social causes, how important is that to not just your business, but, but any business to actually have some level of, of social cause and giving back to, I suppose, charities and, and the community? I think it's so important. I think if you're a for-profit company, I'm not saying that, you know, you have to give a percentage of every sale forever more because it really can affect, especially a startup's, you know, viability to survive. Um, for us, it was very much about campaign-based charitable initiatives that worked appropriately for our team. So, you know, we'd always have the conversation about which charities we wanted to support and, and what would be the appropriate campaign for them. Because what I also don't agree with this sort of, you know, when brands that have nothing to do with, I don't know, w- women's health and, a, you know, a male managed senior management team, and then they give a percentage of their profits to it, it just feels really disconnected from what their actual kind of sales intent is. Whereas all the initiatives, you know, we've done so many events, so much engagement with, you know, everyone from the models in our campaigns to actually where we sell the product in the LGBTQ community, it made sense that we give back to that community in a really genuine way and also we didn't just work with a big charity we worked with the Vauxhall Tavern which is you know one of the original venues in London that that is about to close you know it's at risk of closure because of Covid so it felt really personal and really sort of important to actually get cash in their pockets rather than kind of lining a big company's ad campaign. And and, and looking at I suppose gender inequality which is so uh, prevalent at the moment have you come up against any 
issues, any any sort of discrimination because you're a successful female in business? And indeed, when you were starting and weren't necessarily successful, but were still a was still a female in business, did you get pushback? Did you get people just you know not wanting to talk to you because of that? No, I mean, well, I haven't had people not wanting to talk to me. What would what would probably more challenges was getting on actual paid public speaking gigs as a woman, but I'm not someone who will sit around and kind of ruminate on whether it's because of my gender, because it can be lots of reasons. But the fact that you see less women out there doing it and you see less women getting funding, you know, I would go to pitch events where the numbers were very 50-50, if not more weighted towards women pitching. There sort of is, I guess, proof in the pudding, but it's challenging for everyone. And I and I personally mentor and advise quite a few small women startups at the moment because I'm really honest about how hard it is and kind of where the biggest watchouts for me are. Entrepreneurialism is a celebritydom that's become very kind of fashionable and cool and people love the phrase, I want to work for myself, I don't want to lie in someone else's pockets. And what I kind of reiterate to everyone is, you're not really working for yourself, you're working for your customers, you're working for your team, you're working for your investors. And it's a very different kind of stress because the first salary that's getting cut is yours. So it's all well and good saying you don't want to work for someone else. But if you need financial stability, starting a business is probably not the one. <laughs> you know, if there was a takeaway for people listening to this that are looking to start up in business that haven't yet done so, or indeed are just about to do so, what would that be? The biggest sort of advice I always give people is figure out if your lifestyle is what you want it to be now, because some people just want a change of job. And I think they look at running their own business as like having to reduce the effort, building your CV out and reconnecting and networking. It's almost, they think it's a shortcut. And it's interesting because I've had quite a few friends recently want to start their own things. And my biggest advice is try and go part-time in your current job so that you don't lose all financial stability of an income. And you can give it that sort of deadline of working a five-day week on your own business in two days um, to see how much work it really is because I think people underestimate the workload quite significantly mm -hmm. and also do a personal budget you know how long could you survive on no income for because the reality is you'll have no income for at least one year mm -hmm. you might have no income like I did for pretty mm -hmm. much two years and I made sacrifices and when you've got mortgage or children or mm -hmm. you know a certain lifestyle expectation of holidays the reality is when that gets cut out is that going to make you more unhappy than you currently are now and if it is, like, how can you review your own happiness? Because the work, I've, I've just met so many people that break down in their own business and it is isolating. And it is something that people won't ever really empathize with because there's a bit of a, well, you chose to do it, so don't complain to me mentality, which I also get. Like, you do, you know, I chose to do this. And there were weeks where I'd come home and just hysterically cry, go to sleep, wake up, be sick, and then kind of get on with my day again because it was just, I was in absolute survival mode. And people don't talk honestly about it. I'm actually doing like some short stories at the moment, just kind of to cathartically get out some of those really traumatizing moments, but also put it in a spin. So it's kind of funny because there were times which were just so horrific. You have to laugh. And, and where are those where are those stories going to be aired? Or are they just are they just for you? I mean, are they going to be public? Can people see them anywhere? Read them? I don't know. I mean, I'm putting them. I don't want to put myself under pressure to be like, I'm writing a book because the whole point of whatever I do next, you know, like you said, I've, I've reached a bit of a chapter closing, having sold and gotten it back and, you know, potentially I'll sell it again. Um, but it's given me a financial stability I haven't had for years. It's given me a, a, a sort of pride moment that I haven't had since starting. And, and I want to kind of enjoy that and not rush straight back into overwhelming myself again. But I guess there might be an opportunity for publishing them. There might just be for me.
Yeah, I mean, it's it's so impressive what you've done, and I wish you every success moving forwards. Whether that's buying your business back again, or indeed selling it and then buying it back, or writing a book, or or indeed you know starting a podcast. But honestly, Melanie, thank you very much for coming on. It's it's been fascinating and a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. To check out more about Smith and Sinclair, head over to their website smithandsinclair.com, or to see the recent business which Melanie has sold, head over to withpollen.com, which is all about CBD. Join me next week where we'll be discussing more about failures, mistakes, passion and persistence with another inspiring owner-entrepreneur who is currently in business. Thanks once again for listening. Take care. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this program, then please show your support by subscribing via Apple Podcasts and all other major podcast streaming services. Why not share it with at least three friends and of course, make sure you tune in next week. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the show. Contact me via Twitter at OliverBruce underscore biz or via LinkedIn at OliverBruceOnline. Thank you.